From loosening gun restrictions, to overturning Roe v. Wade, to severely threatening our Miranda rights, the Supreme Court has had a busy summer dismantling decades-old legal precedent. And the news around these decisions can be a lot to process. Crooked Media's Strict Scrutiny is a podcast that covers the United States Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. Each week, co-hosts and law professors Leah Littman, Kate Shaw, and Melissa Murray, personal heroes of mine, break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country. As we gear up for midterm elections, it's more important than ever to understand the repercussions of these SCOTUS decisions and what we can do to fight back this November. Listen to new episodes of Strict Scrutiny every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. In the South right now, you are seeing the largest landmass area where women living in the South have the furthest to go and the largest restrictions. And so as a woman, as a Black woman, and Black women represent less than 1% of chief elected DAs in the country, I felt it was so important for my voice to be heard on this issue. Even if you don't live in my county, to know that there are people like me that, that's, that are fighting for you. This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself. From Kansas, Kentucky, and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at risk. This bill is not about pro-life or the right to life. This bill is about control. We will not go back. And we, the people of the United States of America, documented or undocumented, are having abortions, legal or not. This court will never stop us. I'm Jamia Wilson. And I'm Kate Kelly. And this is Ordinary Equality. If I had to use one word to describe what's been happening in the legal world post-Roe, I think it would have to be chaos. And to be fair, there's a lot changing from moment to moment and by design state to state. We've seen trigger laws go into effect and then get blocked and then go into effect again, only to get blocked again. And don't forget about states that just have regular old non-trigger laws that restrict or ban abortion. These are starting to go into effect too, and they're proving just as complicated to reckon with, especially for the people in charge of enforcing these new laws, prosecutors. Across the country, progressive prosecutors have come forward to assert that they will not charge people seeking or providing abortion care. And these comments have launched prosecutors into the national spotlight. As some of our listeners may recall from episode one of Ordinary Equality, my mom was a prosecutor for 40 years. I interned with her office one summer during law school, 
So while many people may say that there's no such thing as a progressive prosecutor, and believe me, I understand that critique, I know from experience that there are many different types of people who do that job. One such progressive prosecutor is Sherry Boston. She's the district attorney for Georgia's DeKalb County. The county is made up of nearly 800,000 people in the suburbs on the east side of Atlanta. DA Boston actually found out about the overturning of Roe in a text message from her daughter. I remember texting back to her and just saying, are you okay? And her response was, no, I'm not. And that's my 13-year-old daughter. And as a mother, my heart just, it sank in that moment as I tried to find ways to figure out how to comfort her in that moment. And I remember saying, I said to her, I said, do you need to come home? Do you need to leave camp? And she's like, no, I'll be okay. I know that you have a lot of work to do. And she wasn't wrong. The Supreme Court decision was really personal for DA Boston. She's a mother of two, the 13-year-old and a 15-year-old daughter. She told us how heart-wrenching it was to have to think about a future in which her kids are going to have fewer rights than she had. She knew she needed to take a stand. Professionally, I thought to myself, I'm now faced with a real dilemma of how do I make my community feel safe when there would now be laws that were disproportionately unfair to women and to minority women who make up a large part of my community. Prior to the fall of Roe, abortion in Georgia had already been in a precarious state. Back in 2019, Georgia passed a heartbeat bill banning abortion after cardiac activity was detected, typically around six weeks. The law, House Bill 481, stayed tied up in the courts for years. That is, until July 20th. In the wake of Roe getting overturned, a federal court ruled that Georgia's law could immediately take effect. Which was another very unusual circumstance because, generally speaking, there'd be about a 28-day period when an appellate court sends down instructions on how, if they're overturning something or enforcing a law, but it was immediate. So another kind of middle-of-the-day situation where an opinion is coming down and everyone is scrambling to figure out what that means in the moment. Cue panic and uncertainty. There's no time to prepare. There's no guidance from the court on how to actually enact this law. And this bill contains a highly controversial definition that's core to the agenda of the anti-abortion movement, fetal personhood. It also conveyed what we're calling natural person status to unborn humans in the womb at six weeks. And all of the rights that are afforded human beings are now afforded to a embryo at six weeks. Putting the moral complications of fetal personhood aside for just a second, giving an embryo at six weeks the same rights as any old adult walking around on the streets presents a lot of practical questions. 
It creates complications for tax law, family law, immigration, even traffic codes. The country now has to navigate the fact that each state could have its own definition of who counts as a person. DA Boston is one of the people tasked with figuring this mess out. Folks on the other side are arguing, we want to make sure that mothers have the resources they need. And so they would be eligible for child support at six weeks to ensure that that child is cared for. Well, in the family law space, before you get to child support, you have to first establish paternity, right? Paternity is established to identify who is actually responsible, fiscally responsible for that child. So exactly how are we going to determine paternity at six weeks for a person that um, has been given this natural person status, but we can't establish paternity, but that, that woman has the right to child support. There, there's so many unanswered questions and so many convolutions of our law that will come and that do come with how 481 has been implemented. So antis claim that fetal personhood would actually allow pregnant people to receive child support much sooner than they would otherwise. But that argument doesn't really hold water. And there are a lot of legal questions when we enter into the vague territory of fetal personhood. Perhaps the most devastating of them all is what this means if a pregnant person seeks an abortion. I believe the law, as it's written with the personhood status, makes it absolutely possible and likely that you will see women charged with murder or other offenses related to them either seeking an abortion, having an abortion. And we haven't even gotten to those cases where we're going to have investigators trying to show that women have engaged in self-abortions outside of, you know, a medical procedure. And here I thought criminalizing pregnant people was a bridge too far. Apparently not. It's wild that the embryo's personhood is seen as more important than the living, breathing, fully formed person carrying the embryo. But apparently that's totally fine for the antis. And bills like this absolutely could lead to pregnant people being prosecuted. Since this bill passed in 2019, I remember distinctly how district attorneys were even brought into the conversation was that the media started asking the question, well, does this mean that a mother could be prosecuted for murder in the death of an unborn child. And there were a lot of DAs that said, no, no, that's that's not what this means. There's nothing in the statute that says that. But in Georgia law, if you are conveying natural person status or personhood to un- the unborn, then naturally what falls from that is, is that if if the unborn dies at the hands of another, whether it's abortion or any other actor, then the law would legally allow us to charge that person with murder. And anyone that assists 
In the state of Georgia, we can charge a party to a crime, which we do on a daily basis, right? Four people involved in an armed robbery, maybe one person is the one that gets out of the car, pulls the gun and says, give me your money. But the person that stands outside is the lookout, the person that is the driver of the getaway car, they're all equally charged with the commission of armed robbery through our party to a crime statute. So what I effectively believe this means is that anyone that was engaged in the process of helping someone seek an abortion outside of the so-called legal exceptions would be and could be legally charged with potentially up to the maximum penalty of murder, which in the state of Georgia carries a mandatory life sentence. I've heard folks on the other side say, oh, you're, you are blowing a dog whistle here. There's nothing to see here. We were very clear that we're not here to criminalize women. We're only here to criminalize providers. And, you know, it's up to 10 years in jail. It, it, it's wholly a naive understanding of the criminal justice system. Just because it's not your intent for something to be doesn't mean that there aren't collateral consequences. When I heard 10 years in jail, I thought my head was going to explode. That's 10 years in prison for providing meaningful health care. Exactly. It's putting our doctors in an impossible situation. In many instances, doctors are also required by law to report to the police when their patients are victims of illegal behavior. We're now in a situation where doctors might be legally coerced into reporting their own patients. We know hospitals every day are calling the police when there is a rape victim. They're absolutely mandatory reporters when it comes to child abuse. They have to call in the police. So are we going to see doctors being obligated to report cases where they believed someone did something physically or chemically to themselves to induce an abortion? And I think the answer has to be yes, because we have given hospitals and doctors the requirement to keep their licenses as mandatory reporters of any behavior that is criminal. And I don't think there you can carve out an exception when it comes to miscarriages. As so many people point out, anti-choice legislators and campaigners don't care about born people. <laughs> they, they don't support programs for children without resources, health care, homes, food. You know, we even have a formula crisis in this country. You can't even get baby formula for born babies in many communities. It's all fiction. It's all setting up a stage. And the end result is the desired result, which is criminalizing women and pregnant people, particularly those on the margins. It, it, it's almost like a bizarro world they created <laughs> where it's like, we're the ones who care about immigrants. We're the ones who care about black people. We're the ones who care about all these different marginalized groups when the exact opposite is true. And the end result is cr criminalizing those people, putting them in jail uh, for something that they had no choice over the matter in many cases. So 
our slow descent into fascism is really disorienting, I guess. And it's scary when, I mean, and I think that's a part of why I always, you know, people are tired of me saying ad nauseum that this is a cycle of abuse. This is a trauma. We are in, officially in sort of a cult of abuse right now because we are being told that benevolent patriarchy is good for us. We are being told that we are being protected. We are being supported. And there are people who are feeding into it. I mean, it's becoming more normal now to read articles about people doing things like saying that their fetus needs to be counted in the HOV lane, for example, or that their fetuses need to be getting tax breaks, right? And I think part of that is because they see that they can gain support for that kind of opportunistic agenda because they know that it is useful for the forced birth agenda. There is no bottom to the floor (laughs) of how despicable they're willing to be, of how duplicitous they're willing to speak. And I just think our liberal brains get caught in this like hamster wheel of like, but they're liars and they're hypocrites and they don't, you know, and I get caught in that too. I'm like, ah, they don't even give babies formula. But at the end of the day, they don't care. They'll say one thing and say the different thing to the exact same people in the same room five minutes later. I think it's important for us to speak plainly about these things, you know, that it's where they're being called murderers and they're being charged criminally and these laws are you know dependent on the whims of prosecutors and that's not always safe particularly for marginalized communities and so i think it's important for us to call it out but we need to move beyond the stage of the endless cycle of hypocrisy <laughs> like there is no bottom to that floor there is no end to that cycle they can't be shamed We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to look at the role that district attorneys can play in resisting these restrictive laws. Our listeners know that the attack on abortion and other forms of reproductive care is devastating to so many people in so many ways. Sometimes it's hard to know what you can do to help. Trust me, I get it. But our sponsor, ActBlue, makes it easy to take action. ActBlue's online fundraising platform is seamless and secure, which is why they're trusted by millions of grassroots donors who are driving the change they want to see. At wondermedianetwork.com slash donate, you can give directly to reproductive justice groups and abortion funds in just a few clicks. So head to wondermedianetwork.com slash donate to find reproductive justice groups you can support today. That's wondermedianetwork.com slash donate. After the Dobbs decision came down and Roe was overturned, DA Boston immediately went on the offensive. In 2019, she'd already announced that she had no intention of prosecuting people seeking or providing abortions. Back then, she was able to say, look, this bill isn't constitutional under Roe. I won't enforce it. Without Roe, she didn't have that cover. She was on her own. I felt it was important to make my position plainly clear, which is... As you're making this difficult choice, my office will not be seeking to put you in jail or to prosecute you. And I think just having 
that weight lifted, where I believe it is not in the best interest of public safety in my community to do so, I had to tell people in advance. There was a woman sitting in a clinic in that moment seeking an abortion, watching it unfold on TV that I felt like I had I needed to speak to. Breaking news, the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade today, ending nearly 50 years of a federally protected right to an abortion. Channel 2's Michael Seiden continues our live Team 2 coverage now here at home in DeKalb County. Boston, a Democrat, is vowing to never bring criminal charges against anyone seeking, performing, or assisting with an abortion. And I will fight for every woman in DeKalb County uh, until someone drags me out kicking and screaming. Now you might be thinking, can she actually do that? Isn't her job to enforce the law? And you'd be right, it is. But all DAs have prosecutorial discretion. It essentially means that since prosecutors don't have the resources to prosecute every single crime that's ever been committed, they get to decide where they allocate their time and resources. It's a pretty straightforward concept. In a post-Roe world, it's suddenly become a political flashpoint. Prosecutorial discretion has been around since the dawn of the criminal justice system. Every day, we divert cases, we dismiss cases, we choose not to go forward because we can't, meaning we don't have the evidence, or we choose not to go forward because it's not in the interest of justice in our community. So this is nothing new. But now, for the first time, as you're seeing prosecutors use that discretion for protecting the community, it all of a sudden has become a dereliction of duty. That phrase, dereliction of duty, wasn't just a quip. That's actually how a spokesperson for the Georgia Attorney General described the choice not to prosecute abortion in the state. Since coming forward, DA Boston has endured an onslaught of people telling her to essentially shut up and enforce the law, or suggesting that if she wants to change the law, she should just run for the legislature. She sees it differently. I am here to enforce the law, but I need to do it fairly and with equity. And what I can tell you unequivocally is a law like this is not one that could be litigated fairly. We will always have members of our communities that are haves and have-nots. And this law targets and criminalizes the have-nots. The haves are going to get on a plane and go to New York and Chicago. The have-nots are going to face criminal prosecution for making the same exact decisions. The unjust nature of abortion restrictions is well-documented. That unfairness is particularly on display in majority African-American communities like DeKalb County. It's refreshing to hear from a prosecutor who believes in applying the law fairly and sees how abortion restrictions can never lead to just outcomes. In fact, DA Boston believes that prosecuting abortions would make her community less safe. We have victims, domestic violence victims, rape victims, human trafficking victims, we have women that are engaged in sometimes illegal prostitution in order to feed their families. We know all of these instances result in unwanted pregnancies and abortions. 
And so when we start criminalizing and we start prosecuting victims, they will no longer want to talk to us about who their abusers are. They will no longer want to tell us what was happening at a certain place for fear that if they give us the whole story that perhaps they incriminate themselves. When we set up situations where we have to prosecute women and girls in our community in a way where we're also trying to protect them from abusers, then we are eliminating the trust that we need. Despite what her critics may say, DA Boston takes her role as district attorney seriously. She wants to keep her community safe, and she's using her discretion to do exactly that. The reality of it is, is that we know that homicide rates have increased. We know that armed robberies have increased. And, and, and luckily, in my jurisdiction, we've gotten a lot of dedicated resources to go off after those seri- serious violent crimes that are affecting people on a real level and a dangerous level. So the idea that I would divert those resources to investigate um, women seeking or having abortions is almost ridiculous when you look at all the things that are, are way more important to keeping my community safe. We asked DA Boston if she saw herself as part of the resistance. I see district attorneys of, as having the ability to stand in the gap. I mean, we could argue that who our governors are are important, obviously who our legislators, who our senators, certainly who our president is. But locally, district attorneys have the ability to say, even when all of those lines fail, that we are willing to stand up and do what's right. As of late July, more than 90 district attorneys signed on to a letter vowing not to prosecute those who seek, provide, or support abortions. In the grand scheme of things, that's just a fraction of the country's DA offices. There's around 2,000. Plus, many of these prosecutors serve in states where abortion is still legal, like California and New York. But as Slate reported, those 90 DAs do represent around 50 million Americans. No small number. One in four Texans and one in five Georgians are represented by those who signed. So as our rights are downgraded, from federally protected to locally enforced, it has become absolutely necessary to elect a district attorney who is going to stand up for what is right. Still, DA Boston acknowledged that the extent of her jurisdiction lies within the confines of DeKalb County. Even if her neighboring county DAs are allied with her in her response, a whole lot of Georgians still live in counties that could prosecute them for seeking care. Plus, even if a district attorney doesn't choose to prosecute a case, they can't stop the police from making an arrest. And that arrest can stay on someone's record, making their lives significantly harder. Nor can the DAs stop medical boards from revoking doctor's licenses. And virulently anti-choice politicians are starting to punish reluctant prosecutors. While some DAs are taking a stance in order to protect people's rights, district attorneys can also threaten them. Let's not forget that Roe v. Wade was a criminal case. Loving versus Virginia, criminal case. Many of the rights that have been litigated through time were a result of someone being charged locally with a crime. And what that means is that there was a district attorney that was willing to prosecute that case. 
We know Roe, in the case Roe v. Wade, was a woman named Norma McCorvey. But who was Wade? Henry Wade was a Texas politician elected to district attorney in Dallas County. He was DA for 35 years and sent 29 people to death row. So not exactly consistently pro-life. Roe's attorneys initially won in federal district court, but Henry Wade was arrogant. He publicly stated that he refused to obey the decision and would keep prosecuting women and doctors for abortion in Texas. His prosecutorial arrogance helped fast-track the Roe case to the Supreme Court. D.A. Wade was basically the opposite of D.A. Boston. So there has to be district attorneys that are willing to say, no, that's not the right thing to do for my community. And I won't do that. I think it's reflective of the moment that prosecutors who are typically and rightfully associated with the carceral system are some of our last resort against these extremely punitive abortion laws. It's really interesting because I feel that this is one of those examples of how any of us who want to be on the right side of history independent of our stations, can decide to be a part of the resistance. I don't usually associate DAs with being a part of the resistance, but (laughs) in this instance, this is a place where people can choose how they use their power and how they use their influence and decide whether or not they're going to take the many different avenues of resistance that are available to them. I'm interested in seeing what this means uh, in terms of the fight, but also similar to the way that we need more people who go into medicine to learn about how to give people access to safe abortion care. uh, I think that there needs to be conversation about how people who are studying law and who are studying to become prosecutors can think about what it means to become protectors of democracy, access, and human dignity in those roles. And we need pro-choice people in every office now. (laughs) We need pro-choice people in state legislatures, in Congress, in judicial positions, in DA slots. Like, pro-choice is everything now. And we need to get pro-choice people in every possible position of power. We're going to dive more into the electoral side of things in upcoming episodes. For now, the show is going to take another short break, and we'll be back on August 31st. Stay vigilant, and thanks for listening. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production. This episode was produced by Grace Lynch and Alex John Burns. Our editor is Lindsay Cradwell. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Production assistance from Abby Delk. Big thanks to our sponsor, ActBlue.